On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about exams because some school boards in this province have decided they're going to cancel exams this semester because it's too stressful for the kids. That's the reason or one of the reasons that's being given. Is canceling exams a benign move that affects nobody and really is not a big deal? Well, we're going to talk about that one. We're also going to chat about Facebook and a move that Facebook made with a story from the New York Post that some say has opened it up to some vast changes that could be significantly, massively significant to Facebook's future. We'll talk about whether or not that's true. And Don Robertson joins us talking about experience, youth, we're talking about sports, not just as a radio guest, although he could probably speak to that too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A number of school boards in Ontario have announced that they have made the decision already to cancel exams at the end of the semester. It is too difficult to do during COVID, apparently. And we don't know. Others presumably could follow this lead, um, particularly if cases rise, maybe even theoretically Hamilton. We don't know yet. Question is, why do this? Well, COVID, obviously, as mentioned. But also, according to the boards and the Minister of Education, part of the reason this is being done is to reduce student stress. Yeah, apparently our students are under so much stress now that getting rid of exams is something we need to do to help them out. Is this a good idea? Paul Bennett is not only an education expert, he is the man behind Schoolhouse Consulting, which provides independent and relevant commentary and research on critical education issues. He's the author of EduChatter, which has chosen the top education blog in Canada, and he is the author of a new book, The State of the System, which we're going to talk about sometime in the next couple of weeks with him. Uh, for now, though, exams. Paul, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Great to be back with you, Scott. Uh, good idea to get rid of exams? No, it's a poor idea. It's an expedient decision or series of decisions. These are not wise decisions when it comes to student assessment policy, reliability, and validity. In fact, suspending exams um, is tantamount to dissolving assessment benchmarks and it really smacks of um, not the new pedagogy of COVID, but rather the old pedagogy of progressive education morass. Um, we worked very hard to establish a more credible, uh, more standards-based uh, educational system from, I would say, 1988, 1992, up to the 2000s. And Ontario established a reputation for having good standardized tests and essentially adhering to sound end-of-year assessments, including formal examinations, with a, an acceptance that the um, proportion of term work to um, final assessment should be about 70% term work and 30% summative assessment. So eliminating uh, all exams is a retrograde step. And not only is it retrograde, but it's not fair to many, many students. Okay, without getting too, too deep, and I mean, maybe you have to, but what's the purpose of an exam? And, and when I say that, is there anything you a teacher can learn from an exam that they couldn't learn from the curriculum or courses or essays or projects they've assigned during the year? Does, does it really give us a better sense of a student's knowledge or ability or comprehension? Looking back over 35 years in education in three provinces, I have found the exams were 
extremely valuable. They're very revealing as to how students have mastered all of the work in the course. Remember, they are the single most important summative assessment. Assessment comes in two forms. One is formative, that's day-to-day, and that's uh, basically the development of skills. The, uh, in some ways, the most important is what did they achieve as a result of the totality of the course? But what you find nowadays is a lot of teachers are wedded to uh, formative assessment. They're not really comfortable doing summative assessment. And so um, it's not as well done as it could be. But I, I will say this. I think exams are a fundamental core of summative assessment. Without them, you're missing a huge piece. All right. And so we take that out then. And so we lose some sense of that benchmark of whether or not a kid has learned enough to be put through to the next year. If we remove it then and we just shove them into the next grade, especially this year with, you know, what we don't know about online and everything else. Are we not playing with fire by just moving kids into a grade without really knowing if they're prepared to do the next year's work? Yes, we are. But it's even more serious when you consider it's two straight years of not knowing really how they're performing. Keep in mind that the March to June uh, three-month period, of which was consisted mainly of those summative assessments, was completely screwed up last year. And so these commitments being made by the Toronto District School Board, the Toronto Catholic School Board, the Peel District School Board, and the uh, Dufferin-Peel Catholic Board, these decisions are in effect to postponing it for, uh, in some cases, two straight years. Can we double back a bit? What's the purpose of assessment? There's three things that need to be considered. For students, it gives them an idea of how much achievement they've garnered through the course of the year. For teachers, it's the effectiveness of their instruction and gives them a guide to whether they should improve their curriculum delivery. And for the system, it's vitally important that you have some standardized benchmarks so you can compare students, how they're performing from um, place to place, class to class, and province-wide. So if you abandon one of the standard benchmarks, say exams, you're taking away a whole component. What you're hearing, uh, a lot of the reaction was, it's great news, exams canceled. Why? Because teachers are saying we didn't learn a whole lot more. Well, I don't really think that's fair. If that's the case, then we should be asking, what kind of summative assessment were they Mm. implementing if they're not learning new things? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Paul, one thing that um, that you said just before we took a break a few moments ago was you said this is not fair to some people. I, I think a lot of people would probably think, a lot of students anyway, are saying this is great, this is fantastic. Who is it not fair to? I thought you would raise that because uh, the research is quite conclusive that when you compare um, teacher assessments versus standardized assessments, either course content exams or academic skills assessments, What you find is that there's bias inherent in teacher assessments. And um, the far, what comes out ahead in these uh, head-to-head assessments between, say, exams and teacher assessments is that um, student assessments using exams are fair, they're reliable, they're verifiable, they're standards-based, they're replicable from one school to another, they are actually easier to mark, and they generate better longitudinal data. Here's another thing. 
There's research out of Durham University in the UK. And here's what the bias of teacher assessments. The, what's wrong with teacher assessments? They're human. And um, uh, basically standardized assessments and standard exams that have been offered and given for years and years. They, they are actually less biased. Here, here's what happens with teacher assessments. Students with special needs um, don't do as well. Students with challenging behavior tend to get marked down. Um, students with language difficulties, they, believe it or not, don't do as well on teacher assessments. They study very hard for exams and they do better. And pu pupils with personality conflicts with teachers almost invariably don't do well. Here's another thing. There are stereotypes that teachers bring to their assessment. For example, boys, when you assess teacher assessments, boys do better in math. And um, I hate to say this, but there are racial and ethnic stereotypes that are applied with teacher assessment. So here's what I'm saying. And uh, there's evidence out of the University of Durham, uh, Professor Rob Coe, uh, who is actually the chair of the uh, College of Teachers in the UK. It's basically this, that exams and standardized assessments are fair to most students. So what I'm shocked about then when I hear all these answers and I hear where you're coming from is not just that the school boards are doing this, but I'm even more shocked that universities say they're fine, they're going along with this, they're, they're saying it's okay, we'll take the students, we'll go on the grades then that you're giving them. It, it sounds like they are accepting well, a, an unknown. Well, I would say that we have a serious crisis in assessment where the validity, validity of assessments, whether they be graduation grades, whether they be acceptance standards, all are. it's all in my book. It's called The Great Disconnect. The difference, the great disconnect between student attainment levels and actual achievement. Um, my greatest concern, though, you haven't really touched on it yet, you know how they're all saying they're going to have demonstrations of learning that they consider to be comparable? Um, yes, they're, yes. They're not going to be. Uh, I've been in many workshops. I was even in one with Dr. William Spady, who invented outcomes-based education and, and invented the term um, demonstrations of learning. And what I learned was none of those assessments are can be validated they're all too uneven, they can't be replicated, and they're so subjective in their assessments that they're not valuable as summative tools for assessment. And what would so that I be? Could, what, is, what is a demonstration of learning, just so for people who haven't heard that term before? This. Instead of writing an exam, you write and perform a play. Instead of writing an exam, you write an essay which addresses all the themes in the course. Instead of writing an exam, you actually write something or perform something, a musical or something that illustrates something. I had a summative um, assessment once, and I asked a student to write a simulation of the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, a, a showing a complete <laughs> understanding of the Cuban Missile Crisis with all the characters and everything else. I, w I threw everything I could into it, but I wouldn't, even I wouldn't say that that was a fair assessment of the total body of work uh, in that course. The, the other thing, and we only have a minute, I wish we had a lot longer, but the other the other issue, well, there's so much here. Um, the other issue that has come up, and this is one of the words that, one of the phrases that we're hearing, is that this is about reducing student stress. Students are really going through a very tough time right now with online and with not having normalcy and everything else. Um, 
you survived taking exams. I survived taking exams. I'm guessing everyone listening pretty much had survived taking exams and we all had stress and writing exams made us stressed. Uh, is the current cohort of students so delicate that stress is now seen as a negative or a o- non-overcomable obstacle? We have a serious issue there in misinterpreting the differences between normal stress and serious stress that is a debilitating condition. And Dr. Stan Kucher, who's a personal colleague and friend of mine, will tell you, and so will many, uh, teenmentalhealth.org, what they will tell you is that tests are good for students because they're teaching them how to cope with normal stress. Now, you could argue that the pandemic has created a world in which everyone is running scared and frightened, and therefore they're all um, basically on edge. So maybe these are conditions. But under normal circumstances, there is nothing wrong with writing an exam and a test. It's part of, of learning how to cope with normal stress. Mm. An exam is normal stress. And when it becomes something that you fear, that you run away from, then it is really not serving the long-term purposes of education. And I think many educators, and I know the uh, uh, NUMCOG uh, lab at uh, Carleton and the NUMCOG lab at Western, they both will support this, inten- this, this argument that normal stress in math is actually good for students. I can assure you, I had lots of stress and full-on panic when I wrote my exams. And uh, you know what? There you go. It's it's normal. Uh, Paul Bennett, author of The State of the System, his new book, which we will have him back on to talk about very, very soon, because I really want to get to that. Paul, thank you so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk with you again. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what I think is a fascinating story that has emerged over the past few days. Uh, And it sounds like it's a political story. It's really not. But we have to get into the political side just a little bit to explain. The New York Post, which everyone knows is a legitimate legacy newspaper, it's a real paper, published a story about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, claiming there are emails proving the son helped arrange a meeting between the presidential candidate and Ukrainian energy executives. Now, this is a big deal because, well, I'm assuming sometime over the past four years, you've heard something about Russian interference in the election. Becomes a big deal. Here's where this becomes a story, though. Even though it was printed in the New York Post, as I say, a legitimate paper, Facebook blocked the story on its platform, saying there were accuracy questions. So why is this a big deal? It's not really political at this point, because under the law, Companies that exert editorial influence are considered publishers, and the publishers are subject to being sued for libel, unlike social media sites, which would consider themselves kind of just a bulletin board where anyone can publish anything, and they're really not responsible for vetting any post. But now, if Facebook is a publisher, imagine how this changes their responsibility for the things that end up on their site. Alan Mendelson is a lawyer who specializes in internet issues. We love having him on here. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Scott, it's my pleasure as always. How are you doing? I'm, I'm great. Well, you know, as, as great as you can be in 2020 Scott? in lockdown, living out of the basement. Right? Scott? Uh, yes. Yeah. Is Alan still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. There we go. Okay. See, you asked how I was, and that was your answer right there. (laughs) Technically inept. Um, Alan, if I'm reading this story right, and I may or may not be, um, Facebook has sort of now, by saying that this story the Post had written and saying, we won't publish it because we don't believe in its accuracy, 
Facebook has kind of taken an editorial position. And if they did do that, as opposed to just being a place that opens its doors and says, post whatever you want, has it not changed the definition of what the company is? Well, it may have changed what the definition of the company is, but I don't think your introduction was necessarily 100% accurate. Okay. Um, It's it's a bit complicated, and I took three hours to explain this to my McGill Law class last week, so I'll try and give you the 30-second version. Um, The way it works is traditionally publishers, as you mentioned, can be sued for what they published based on defamation laws or, or other things like that. And there's something, and the, there's a law in the United States called the uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which specifies that the interactive computer services, such as Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc., shall not be considered publishers for the purposes of lawsuits. So they have a shield from liability for things that happen on their site, point one. Point two of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act specifically says that if one of these platforms uh, removes or restricts access to certain material, that they have reason to believe they, you know, that is, it's, it's violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable is actually the language that's in there, they can't be sued for that removal either. So even acting like someone who has some sort of control over the content on the platform by removing it or by restricting access to it or restricting the ability of people to share it, which is sort of what Facebook and Twitter did with respect to the Hunter Biden New York Post story, um, they would still be immune from liability. So that second part is why you have the president of the United States screaming to repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The question, and this was raised by a number of people, and and where this idea, because I had never heard of this before, to be honest, and I don't think most people had about this idea. The point that was made or the question that was raised was, okay, but if you choose to remove one because you say that um, you your decision or your belief is this is not accurate, there is a lot of stuff that still makes it through onto Facebook that would not be accurate or would be wild conspiracy theories or probably under normal circumstances would be considered libelous. If you can remove the, that first one, well, how can you let that other one go through? How, how, come I'm al- how come I'm allowed to be libeled, but you're not letting someone else be questioned? Oh, well, don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree with you that it's problematic when companies such as uh, Facebook or Twitter get to sort of pick and choose what they believe, or it may be problematic, what they believe should be removed or access limited to. So, for example, you know, last week, um, finally, uh, Facebook decided to delete um, posts that were with respect to Holocaust denial. I think most of us would agree that that's probably a good thing. There are certain First Amendment uh, proponents in the United States who probably wouldn't. But, you know, I think we'd say it was probably a good thing. But then it starts a slippery slope. You know, uh, Facebook starts removing QAnon accounts in the United States. Is that reasonable or not? What power should they have to remove content or block access to content 
I mean, that's the question of our age. But in this particular case, Facebook and Twitter are trying to avoid the issue, what happened in 2016, where it's widely believed that, you know, Facebook just let everything go. Well, it's not widely believed. It's a fact that Facebook just didn't regulate any content in 2016 and allowed Russian disinformation to propagate wildly, perhaps affecting that 2016 election in the United States. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alan, I guess the, the, the issue here is how could Facebook or any other site like this possibly vet every post that was made? I mean, they're getting billions a day. How, it, it would be impossible to do that. Well, they can't. There's, there's no question. That's, you know, um, that's the major question with regard to all of these platforms. They simply do not have the, uh, you know, human resources to have humans do this kind of work. And it's clear that most likely the algorithms and technology that are designed to do that are not up to the job. So that becomes problematic as well. Um, and, you know, does it become problematic when the platforms make certain editorial decisions about what they ban and what they won't ban um, or what they'll limit access to or what they won't limit access to? In legal terms, is fact checking the same thing as an editorial decision? Can you can you create absolute objectivity so that our fact checker is so good that we know that we are not really making an editorial decision? We're simply blocking improper facts. Oh, wow. I mean, the problem is, well, you know, let me preface this by saying I, I'm not an expert in journalism law. I'm an expert in Internet law, so I'm not sure I'm actually qualified to answer that question. Um, but, you know, then again, I'll just dive forward and answer that question. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't think that the problem is in everything in the well, maybe not so much up here in Canada, but certainly in the United States, uh, every fact, quote unquote, is colored by a person's perception of that fact. Um, and that's colored by their political leanings one way or the other. So, you know, I, I, I think with respect to the particular Hunter Biden story, um, it's become quite clear that that story was not factual. Um, there were reports today that um, people who were writing the story at the New York Post withdrew their names from it because they didn't believe it. There was a report today that Fox News rejected the story from Rudy Giuliani because they didn't believe it either. So, you know, I, I think when you have certain media outlets, mainstream media outlets in that regard, you know, denying the veracity of a particular set of facts, well, you know, we tend to have to believe them. Um, but the problem is, you know, uh, in the polarized landscape of politics in the United States right now, uh, you know, what's facts for CNN is often not facts for Fox News, and it's problematic. Well, and I can't believe, quite frankly, that Facebook let itself get into this pickle because it seems to me that um, I, I agree with you. I mean, if there if there is real reason to look at a story, and there seems to be in this case, and say we got problems with this, uh, that's fine, and that and that that would be something where you could say, yeah, we're not going to let this on because we disbelieve it. But the amount of stuff on both sides that is just wacky that has made it through the alleged fact checkers makes you then say, well, now this looks like a political move by Facebook rather than simply a fact-checking move. And if some of the crazy stories about Trump or about, 
pick whoever else had been also purged, you would say, yeah, they're doing their best to try and just make this a an accurate place. But that seems to be the problem, that it becomes a political thing. Well, there's no question. You know, it, it, it's, it's a political thing if you – but at the same time, you know, you can only believe certain good faith efforts in the sense – now – Facebook did a terrible job surrounding the messaging of this and how they handled this and so forth. Um, but if they truly believe that a story was non-factual uh, and chose to prevent its wide dissemination on their platform in an effort to um, not have not be duped the way they were in 2016. And mm. I think in most of it, it goes back to that, because in Facebook in 2016 said we're just wiping our hands of the whole thing. We don't really care that Russian bots are spreading all of this disinformation. We don't care that literally Russians bought advertising on our platform to spread disinformation. And they just let that happen. And, you know, you've seen what the last four years have wrought down there. So, you know, I, I think they perhaps it's an overcorrection, but perhaps at the same time, it's something where Facebook has said, you know, we just can't have a repeat of what happened then. Yeah. And the trouble for Facebook beyond any legal things, which may not ever land is this is now so out there, so front and center that now every single story, you're going to have people screaming, this isn't true. This isn't true. I mean, it, now they're going to be challenged on pretty much everything that is being published on both sides. I mean, it's a bit of a PR mess for them right now. Yeah, of course it's a PR mess, but it's, it's a PR mess no matter what. I mean, Facebook is no matter what they do, they'll be attacked by one side or the other. They are sitting on, I think the number lately is 2.7 billion users worldwide. That is how much power does a platform have when it has that kind of user base? Um, and no matter what they do, no matter what approach they have, um, they're going to face criticism no matter what. It is a, uh, it's an interesting story. You should go uh, take a look for more online. Alan Mendelson, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure as always, Scott. Have a great evening. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the clean shaven, I think, anyway, Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and so many other things in Dundas. You can see his shining clean shaven face as you drive up Main Street from Dundas around the corner. There is his giant billboard. Sir, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? And I'm clean shaven for the most part. All right. Part. Even with even with the Stanley Cup playoffs just ending a little while ago, you didn't grow a playoff beard. Uh, no, I I uh, I can't. I can't can't grow sideburns. And uh, I grew up in the '70s, so I was the only kid in town without sideburns. So it's uh, be a sketchy beard. I can handle a goatee though. See, I I have like you and like maybe some other people listening. You've got the sideburn problems. I've got a few patchy area still plus you know the, the the hair is getting a little gray on the face and if i were to grow it out i would look like i was amish i'd have that big under chin giant long billy goat thing going and nobody wants to see that no, anyway you should uh, what, stay the course yeah what what i've been wondering though is since you know, once upon a time and speaking of stanley cup playoffs since once upon a time it was the thing since I think the Philadelphia Flyers of the 70s, the Bobby Clark, Bernie Perrant era, Broad Street Bullies team, I think they started it, but the playoff beards became a thing because nobody back then had a beard except for Bill Flett, the player on that team. But 
that became a thing because nobody donned in hockey had a beard. Now that everybody has a beard, shouldn't the playoff thing be no beards? Isn't it supposed to be the opposite of what you do? I, yes, I think that's generally a trend. Did, uh, and I, I apologize for not remembering, Lou Lamorello's teams don't generally have beards. No. I mean, he didn't even let his coach have one. Right? I mean, and Pat I, Burns got rid of the famous mustache, and yep. I don't think they grow beards. But I don't know if Lou Lamorello's teams, if he breaks with that rule in the playoffs so they can have a playoff beard, but you're right. He's like the old New York Yankees or Cincinnati Reds where they weren't allowed to have a beard during the season. So Yeah, it's, uh, the tradition's nice. I, I, I think it's a nice break. You know who should not be allowed to have a beard? The other group, the other athletes that should not have a beard, and I say this sincerely, anybody in boxing or uh, like UFC and mixed martial arts, because you get cut. And then you got to get stitched up and it's just, it's a pain in the butt for the doctors to have to get in there and work their way through all the hair on your face and stuff. If you go into that sport, you should be shaving it off. Yeah, I would agree. I can't see any real advantage to uh, having that happen unless you're a a UFC wrestler and you want to scratch somebody with it. Perhaps they should be clean shaven, right? Because you could almost use it as a weapon to distract. (laughs) Years ago, there's a guy from Hamilton named Josh Hill who uh, he's a, he has been in the UFC. He's a mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, many of you listening will know of him. And a number of years ago, I had him on this show, and it wasn't a beard thing, but one of the things I asked was, does anybody in that sport ever use BO as a weapon? Just not bait? Because you're, you're wrestling. You're in tight quarters. Your, your head might end up in someone's armpit. Like, does anyone not shower to? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's happened. I was like, oh, th- that should be against the rules too. That, you, that you're required to bathe before you come into the octagon because nobody wants to be stuck in someone's armpit who hasn't had a shower in two weeks. Just saying. No. Just saying. Totally talking off track. About, talking, but... about, talking about armpits, I, I think uh, <laughs> the 76 Olympics when the uh, German shot putter, the uh, she had a beard. There were a few back then from East Germany, yes. There were. There were. There were a few from some, not just Germany either, the Czechoslovakia and some of the other Eastern Bloc countries. Yes, there's uh and, and you know, this, it's f- funny in a sense, but it's also incredibly sad in a sense. And I've read some stories over the years because those women, um, most of them, and this is not where I was going to go with this show right now, but it's, it's anyway, um, most of those women who were competing for those Eastern Bloc countries were not given the choice about whether to take the steroids or not. They were told you were going to take them. And there was not any real, you know, oversight or concern about what these steroids were. I mean, elephant tranquilizers and stuff. And you knew that (laughs) it was going to have a negative. Well, many of these women have either died or had horrible cancers or disfigurement or all. I mean, like, it's horrible what happened to them. And in their particular case, Don, as I say, unlike people today who... I don't have sympathy for people who take steroids now because it's their choice. These were people who it was foisted upon them. And you look at what happened to them later on, you go, man, that is just, that, that's awful. Well, yeah, it, when, when, when it's without choice and they're picking, you know, they, they also kind of handpicked the big, strong, um, manly women, right? The ones that could probably play line for the Buffalo Bills this week. Uh, but they were all groomed to be, you know, specific athletes in the Olympics so they could find success. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if when you have state sanctioned, not even state sanctioned, state required doping, which, you know, the, the, some of the stories were that from back in those days, uh, you know, that, that becomes, that becomes horrific that, you know, some of the stuff that they've had to deal with and people, if, you know, if you want to go read it, I mean, you can read it, uh, read stories online about what some of these women have, have suffered through since then health wise and everything. It's, it's not, um, you know, we, we sort of, we laugh at the caricature of the 1970s East German female athlete, but uh, it's been, it's sad what has happened to many of them. Anyway, let us move along from that. I, I have no idea how we got there, but, um, oh, beards. That's how we got there. National no beard day. Again. <laughs> um, Don, we have watched over the last week or so since we last spoke, the Toronto Maple Leafs have signed a bunch of guys in free agency. Um, at least three of them older than you. And, um, this is, you know, this is an interesting move on behalf of the Leafs because up until now, the, the strategy has been young, fast, skillful. We don't need any grit. We don't need any experience. We don't, as long as you're fast and you can play, that's great. Um, now, you know, Joe Thornton, 41 years old, Wayne Simmons. I don't even know how old Wayne Simmons is, but he's got a million billion miles on his body. Um, uh, what's his face who came back from last year, who was on the team, um, um, who Spezza. used to be with the senators. Hmm? Spezza. Spezza. Thank you. Jason Spezza. Yeah. I was having a brain block. Where, where's the balance? You're building a hockey team where, or any sport, but you're familiar with hockey. Where's the balance in how much does that leadership really help in the dressing room or how much is it just overstated and you're just slowing your team down? I mean, you look at this, you go, is this team going to be way better because they have this leadership or you've now got three guys that are going to slow down your program, not really going to help. Well, it's, it's an interesting balance, right? They, uh, and you don't have to be 41. You don't have to be 38 to be a leader. You just, it comes naturally, but leaders do exceptional things. Uh, the, the leadership, I think the leads are looking from these type of players is that they've been in the trenches. Um, they don't have a whack of Stanley cups behind them, but they know what it takes to be a winner. And, you know, you talk about all they wanted was speed and finesse and everything else. Cause that was the key. Well, the interesting thing is they're getting guys like Simmons and Joe Thornton and, uh, they have Spezza. Uh, they have these guys because they bring all those components. The biggest, the biggest asset those guys bring is they'll play for free. Like they're all basically playing for the minimum 700,000 and the young guys that the Leafs would have had in those spots aren't at minimum they're, you know, some of them are a million five, some of them a million seven, and they're hoping Joe Thornton, um, could do the job and they're going to have to mix it up. They're going to have to mix these guys in because if they go on a playoff run, they likely can't play every night through the entire tournament. So they'll mix them through. We did that in Brantford when we won an Allen cup with uh, Jonathan and, and the late Gordy Brooks, we would mix these guys in and it brought, it was tremendous. It was very uh, effective. And uh, that's what the Leafs are going to have to do. But I, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest key is it's cheaper and they don't have any cap room. So you so bring this Jumbo is... Joe in, you bring the veterans in and you get them for the price of an American league player. So this is not all that much necessarily then about experience. I mean, that can help, but it's about just the dollars in your mind. 
Well, it's, I think that's a big component of it. But, I mean, the guys they're replacing, and I don't know the roster well enough, the bottom part of the roster, but it would have been far more expensive. But they have absolutely no room for guys that want any more than the minimum, right? So, they, I mean, they, they had to do it. There'll be guys playing in the Marlies this year because they would have made too, made too much of a cap hit on the big team. The part about the experience, though, and, and I get your part about the money, and I, I think there's a lot to that, but the part about the experience, how much of this is an indictment of Matthews and Marner and Anderson and Nylander and, I mean, even Tavares maybe, that, that you got to bring in these veteran guys and tout their leadership and the guys who are wearing the letters in your dressing room, it, it, like it, it's, it looks like a slap against those guys. Well, I, I think it is because that's what they're selling. I mean, with Simmons, they sold grit. With, uh, you know, uh, Big Joe, they're selling leadership and everything else. What they're not saying is he's a veteran guy, you know, who can help us, but he'll play cheap. They can't say that. They can't say, you know, that the real reason they're getting a guy of that caliber is because he'll play for next to nothing. He can play all positions up front. And he knows he's not going to play every night. So, yeah, but are they they mixing it up a bit? I think the message is a little bit. It's like a good fajita, you know. You need all kinds of different ingredients to make it good. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And they're selling the leadership component. And assuredly, they've, they've talked to Tavares and these other guys and say, boys, we're bringing them in, but here's what we're selling. You're going to lead our team. And, and the young guys will have to lead the team. But it's a pretty good backup squad. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I, I see this, and you can pitch it to the young guys all you want that, you know, it's here's what we're doing. If if you have a captain and a bunch of alternate captains and you start bringing in guys like this, to me it is screaming that we don't think that you're leading. It's, just, it's screaming that we don't think your leadership is appropriate here because there's no question about talent. No one's questioning Matthews or Marner's or or any of these guys' talent, but what's missing is clearly what the thing is they're bringing these guys in for. To me, that's a screaming indictment of what they think is in the dressing room. Well, what, uh, who it's a real slap at is, well, yeah, uh, Matthews, uh, you know, I guess is pretty young to be a captain in any event, uh, but Muslim and uh, Tavares and, you know, Tavares should be able to lead the entire National Hockey League for what he's getting paid, and he didn't do it. And he hasn't done it. And I think the Leafs are seemingly beyond worrying about who cares about what. They want to win. And they're kind of taking the gloves off a little bit with the club, and that's not a bad thing. That, and that's the other thing I was going to mention is that I think it's really interesting that they have been treated with kid gloves. And, you know, Matthews and Marner, for the most part, and a few others have gotten a pretty free ride. You know, we hear all the time how tough the media is in Toronto, how the players are just running to the ground. Show me the the evidence that these guys have have experienced that, Don. Show me. Yeah, you know what? Matthews got some got upset when the story came out about him dropping his pants, and he got upset at Steve Simmons for pointing out that he got COVID, which I didn't have a problem with. It was a legitimate news story, quite frankly. But, um. Show me how these guys have been mistreated by the media like we hear all the time. They've been treated with the gentlest of gentle 
handling ever. Ever. Velvet gloves. Um, Sundin never got that soft a ride. Nope. None of the former captains that I can remember, and I can remember a lot of them, ever, ever escaped the scrutiny and were given the benefit of the doubt like these guys. Is there a lot of media attention? Of course there is. Is there more than anywhere else in the National Hockey League? I would say so. Are they hammering on them? Not a chance. You're absolutely right. These guys have seen nothing. But I'll bet you the gig's up. They've well, I'll tell you something back. else. Don, I'll tell you something else. That media, you know, contrary to the idea that they've been hammered by the press, they have been they've been deified. They've been turned into heroes, which is why Marner got the contract he did. He would Marner would never have got the contract he did in any other market in the NHL, maybe Montreal. But even then, probably not, because they've been turned into heroes. M- uh, Matthews, I mean, Matthews is a great player. He probably would have got that money. Tavares, I don't know. But it's the fact that they've been built up into these unbelievably heroes that have been largely untouched by the media that allowed them to get those contracts. Look at look at the other contracts that are being signed around the NHL for similar players, and they're nowhere close. Nowhere close. And that's because the Toronto media, and I'm not blaming the Toronto media, you know, but the, I, I'm simply saying they get a reputation as being this howling band of foaming dogs that are looking to tear down the Leafs. And it's been the opposite of that. There's been none of that with these guys, which is why I think now that you're bringing in these leaders and saying, look, you had it easy. You couldn't do it. We're going to bring in some people who can. Well, the problem is uh, the guys are bringing in can't perform to that level. But I think my prediction would be if they don't get off to a pretty good start and the key guys, the four, the four guys that are getting all the money, I think the media are going to turn on them this year. I think they've given them that holiday. I think that youth thing is over with. Nobody gave a hometown discount. Nobody, not Marner. Marner was likely the worst. I want my money. I don't care if like Sidney Crosby, I still think is making eight point seven million. Now Sidney Crosby's getting a little older. Sidney Crosby's been make, making eight point seven million forever. That's a lot of money. He recognizes that, but he knew that if he didn't take a bit of a discount, Pittsburgh couldn't win. I defy you to point out which one of those four high-paid players said, "You know what? This isn't right. Build the team. I want to play on a winner. I want to play in a winner in Toronto, so I know I can get more money somewhere else." I'm prepared to take a discount because I want to win in Toronto. Not one of them took a nickel less than they wanted, and they held the team hostage. And you're right. To a certain extent, the media the media supported that. But the media aren't going to let them off the mat this time because I think you're probably they know right. What they and, did, and, and the guys haven't put, come out for them, haven't put out, haven't come through, and haven't won. And we got to take a break, but I'll say this. If um, where it's going to be especially bad for them is if their performance, and I'm not even talking about points necessarily, although that's a big deal, but I mean, points can come and go. You can hit goalposts. You can have guys, you pass it to them and they don't finish. I mean, things can go wrong. If, if the fans and the media are watching this team this year, whenever this year is, and you've got a 41-year-old in Thornton or a 30-whatever in Simmons, or whatever, and they are putting forward more effort than the other guys, that's when things are going to turn. 
if you suddenly see Thornton out there blocking shots and doing all the stuff he has to do, and you're not seeing the same from Nylander, I mean, Nylander's the one guy that probably hasn't caught the benefit that has been criticized, but man, oh man, if Nylander is not giving the effort that you're seeing from other guys, that's when I think you're going to see people turn. I, I agree. I, and, and you're right. The way, the way it'll unfold is if those guys are all doing the things they need to do. Everybody talks about Spezza dropping the gloves last year and giving the Leafs a chance, right? Like he, he got full marks for that. He did the right thing. He's probably going, you know what? I, at my age, this might help. They don't expect me to fight, so we fought. Like, it'll be interesting to see if it catches on. But if you see Big Joe doing that and Simmons doing that and Spezza doing that and the young guy's not doing it, holy crap, there won't be a rail big enough to send him out of town on. Yeah, but you know what? When we do have to go, the, the problem is with those contracts they've got, they're untradeable because no other team has the room in their salary structure to allow them. So you're, you're basically stuck with them or you're going to have to take back some ugly giant contract and nothing else. If, if, you know, and they're not going to trade Matthews, obviously they're not going to trade Marner in all likelihood. They're not going to trade Tavares. So even Nylander at that money, I, I don't, anyway, it's, um, it's an interesting position and it's an interesting Interesting message, I think, that has been sent. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, we were just talking hockey. We were talking about age and experience and everything else. Uh, Putting you on the spot here, because I never asked you this to prepare for this. So, you know, but I never do. If you had to pick right now of the seven Canadian teams in the NHL, which one would you say right now is the best team, is the most ready to compete for a Stanley Cup? Toronto. You think so? Yep. I think so now. Based on what? Uh, their goaltending's solid. Uh, is he the best goaltender? No. Can he win you a game? Yes. Uh, he's not likely going to let a softball in at the wrong time. Uh, I think their defense is better. And I think with the additions up front, uh, they'd be very difficult to beat. I'll be I'm, what I'm going to be fascinated with. I'm not sure I agree with you, but I'm going to be so interested to see now that Frederick Anderson, for the first time since he's been in Toronto, appears to have a competent defense. How that changes the goalie that he is? Because up until now, it's oftentimes been him having to hold the fort, and now he's got some guys who can actually play the position in front of him. That to me is going to be fascinating to see. And the, and the reason I say that is because you'll remember this, Don. There are goalies that seem, you would think, oh, you know, they're going to be great now because they're going to a team with really structured defense and they're not going to get nearly as many shots and they're not as good. And the the guy that comes to mind for me, top of the list is Curtis Joseph, who in games when he had 60 shots, he was amazing. And then he goes and joins the Detroit Red Wings and they're still a great team and he gets 20 shots a game and he was not very good. And so it's going to be interesting to see because I think that Frederick Anderson is really the key to the whole thing, as always, in modern hockey. I think the goalie is your most important guy. And if this new defense makes him an even better goalie, I think then maybe I can agree with you. Well, first of all, I'm not even sure I agree with myself uh, on that pick, but I had to make <laughs> one. And you, as a veteran quality goaltender, would recognize that fact. And that's not, that's not a new theory. Um, some guys are just better when they're busy. 
Yep. And uh, there's something to be said for that. Now, the Toronto Maple Leafs are not do not have the defense of the Montreal Canadiens in the 70s. They're just better. And I think it's enough to help. I don't think their shots and their chances are going to be cut in half, but I think they can be cut by 30%, and that should be enough to be impactful. Um, but it's not like he's not going to have some giveaways, and you know it's not going to be all sealed up, as I say, with Robinson and Savard. But it should be better, and that should make enough of a difference to a guy like that because he's not Cujo. He doesn't need 60 shots a night. No. Right? But And you're right. Uh, uh, Felix Botban was like that. Oftentimes, um, Carey Price has been like that. Like, you just go, how does he do that? But they do it. And then all of a sudden, you get in the game when there's 21 shots and they give up four. But it's it's all like the Russians used to do when we don't shoot them th- three to one. They only shot when they had scoring chances. They didn't shoot to be wide. They didn't have. Yeah. If they didn't feel it was a scoring chance, they'd hang on to the puck and pass it off rather than take a weak shot, give it to the other team, and back up the ice and go. They decided we'll just hang on to it if we don't have a scoring chance. So depends on the quality of chances, and I think the Leafs can probably cut their chances down by thirty percent, and that should be enough. And by the way, thank you for the compliment referring to me as a veteran quality goalie, although I think you, what you were meaning was a veteran as in World War II veteran as if he was playing today quality goalie. <laughs> as, as a 96-year-old guy, yes. Um, yeah, you know, the, I mean, look, Vancouver Vancouver is probably the, the right answer because uh, they had a great run last year and, you know, they've, they've got a few more pieces. Um, I'm... You know, I am not by nature a Montreal Canadiens fan, but for what I just said, where the goalie is your most important player on the team, uh, uh, Carey Price, if he gets hot in the playoffs, Carey Price can carry a team a long, long way as well. Um, I don't know. It's it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting because there's really, to me, Don, there's only one not good Canadian team this year, and that's Ottawa. And they'll be good in a few years. It looks like with all the moves they've made. I'm not sure Ottawa is going to be very good this year, but every other Canadian team should be pretty darn good this season. Which I can't remember the last time we said that. No, it's 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 an interesting challenge to pick one, and I didn't pick one thinking like you you can never discount Carey Price, and Carey Price can win you a round or two. I don't know if he can play well enough in four rounds to win you a Stanley Cup, but he can sure make a difference in one round um, and all the teams. But you're right. I don't think there's been any time in the last decade when the Canadian teams have this much depth and this much quality as we have right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, it is amazing to me. I didn't really put this together until yesterday while I was watching the football yesterday afternoon a little bit, Tampa Bay won the Stanley Cup final, won the Stanley Cup. The Tampa Bay Rays now are in the World Series beginning tomorrow evening, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady just dismantled the previously undefeated Green Bay Packers, and now that their guys are getting healthy again because they were banged up, looked great. I can't remember, maybe Boston at one point, but I can't remember a city that potentially could win three championships in one year. 
Oh, not in recent memory. And certainly Tampa has never been in that mix ever, um, mostly because of the Bucks. But, yeah, it's pretty unique, uh, pretty lofty spot to be in when you look at, uh, like Tampa Bay, the hockey team, the Lightning, you know, they're, they've, been a, they've been at the top of the league, a fluke uh, the year before when they got beat out. But they've been pretty strong. The Buccaneers have really not been Super Bowl challengers until they picked up Brady, right, and a couple other key ingredients. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting mix. And the Tampa Bay Rays have always been competitive in the East. You know, they're always sniffing around second place. Usually it's Boston and Yankees, of course. But they're they're not money ball, but they don't have big budgets, or they traditionally haven't had big budgets. So they might be a bit of the wild card um, to make it. And maybe it's because Boston and the Yankees had a bad year. But you're right for all three of them. I mean, if you if somebody if Vegas let you bet on what are the odds of pick a city winning three major championships in one year, boy. I think they'd have trouble winning an NBA championship. Well, uh, yes, they, they might have trouble winning an NBA championship, but I couldn't help but think, though, how much, I mean, it's, it's great for sports fans down there, but in 2020, if this happened in the, span, in the 2020 year, A, it would be bizarre, which everything else in 2020 has been bizarre, but how much would it stink that you could win three championships and have no parades and no public. I mean, they kind of had a Stanley Cup parade. They were in boats, but my of all the years when you could not really celebrate for this one, what a year to win all three potentially. Yeah, that would be. It's, uh, you have an interesting mindset, don't you? Just to come up with that, but that's you're right. They can't really do much about it anywhere. The Bills are playing in front of absolutely no fans, and it's not because nobody likes the Bills this year. It's just the whole thing is odd. And you're right. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a year uh, to win three and not be able to do much celebrating? Well, and, you know, I said, oh, okay, that's fine. I'll, you know, we'll put it off and we'll have a parade a year from now or something. But it, it kind of doesn't work like that. It, you know, once the next year starts, uh, it's really hard to ramp up that same level of enthusiasm and really feel the same about it. I mean, a parade has to happen when you're all geeked up about your team. I just don't know it'll work. Anyway, uh, how though do, I mean, again, you've been involved in sports forever. How do you get a team like the Tampa Bay Rays that have, if not the lowest, almost the lowest payroll in all of baseball and every single year, pretty much they're competitive. I just don't even get it because every other team is looking for that, 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 way to do that because they'd all love to save the money. I mean, there's, there's guys who, I think I read that, um, two Blue Jays, and I can't remember which two they are right now, but, uh, uh, Grichuk and, uh, to, 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 to one of the other ones, the highest paid one made more than the entire Tampa Bay roster. And you're like, how do well, you do that? I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's always a challenge, but when you build like Tampa do, Generally speaking, you can only ever get good enough to be competitive. You generally don't get it over the hump. And if you do, it's once in a blue moon. And these other teams that try and go for it think they can buy their way there. And they don't have any more success than Tampa. And I think as an owner, you look at it, but the GM could say to you, yeah, but Tampa can never win. They can compete. 
you didn't hire me to compete. You hired me to win. And you watch. Tampa can't win with that system. And then every once in a while, Tampa come along, and then all those general managers got to go, okay, so that was a fluke. And the owner's going, yeah, but they're, they're better than we are every year, and we're spending four times as much money. You see, that's, that's always traditionally what you say about a team that doesn't spend that much is, yeah, they're good, but they'll, they'll never win at all. And then things like this happen, and you do win it all. And the year before that, the Lightning got beat out, had no business getting beat out, but they did. That's why Los Angeles Dodgers this year, Don, Los Angeles Dodgers this year, who is Tampa's opponent in the World Series, their payroll this year, 105.5 million, second overall, just behind the Yankees, who are at 113.9. So second Dodgers, 105.5, way down near the bottom, $28.6 million Tampa Bay Rays. $28.6 million. They were fourth, actually, from the bottom. I'm surprised. I thought they were lowest. Miami, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore below them, although two of those four teams are rebuilding. Um, but yeah, you're talking a fifth, a quarter, pardon me, a quarter this payroll, and you could knock off the Dodgers. I just, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me and how... And, and, you know, the amazing part about this on top of everything else is the Jays manager is a former Tampa Bay Rays bench coach. And you're thinking, oh, yeah. if we get a guy from Tampa, we're going to bring some of that magic here. <sighs> Hasn't really happened. I, I don't well, I don't think that pulling pieces out of that and taking it somewhere else makes it work. There's just something magic in that system right now. Yeah, Montoya apparently wasn't the key clog down there, but apparently. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing is you you probably have the advantage of, that I don't have is, but I would bet you the uh, the Dodgers are paying three pitchers as much as the uh, Tampa Bay Rays are getting paid. I bet. Well, Kershaw. So Clayton Kershaw is making $30 million this year. He's making more than the Tampa Bay team entirely. The guy who's going to start against I, them in game one is making more than the entire roster of Tampa. They should make him start every game. It's amazing. I mean, it is. Whatever the magic is. And here's the here's the thing. we got to go to a break. Um, Billy Bean, who is the Oakland general manager, and everyone will remember him because he was the guy in the movie Moneyball played by Brad Pitt. When he figured it out, he wrote a book about it, which I always thought was incredibly stupid because he has this yep. formula that's working. Why tell everybody in baseball how you did what you did? Because then they all tried to Im imitate it and that advantage you had was gone. So I was, I was always stunned by Billy Bean giving it up that easily. I don't know what Tampa's well, I, magic is, but I bet they're not going to write a book. I'll bet you Billy Bean, like a lot of good cooks, when they share the recipe, they leave a couple key ingredients out so nobody can match it. Well, a lot of teams tried though, and then pilfered all of his parts and all of his, all the general managers were all doing money ball and, you know, and some of them have had success and where's Oakland? I mean, they're, they're a good team, but they're not in the world series. Uh, Don, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Have a great week. All right, Scott. You too. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.